in the backyard were the, the best games in town where we grew up. At that time, I was a little too young to play, and that used to make me mad because um, I thought I was good enough. But uh, we'd always pick up a, a kid in the neighborhood, and the games never ended because we'd always get into fights. And then my father would come out with a shovel or a rake or a baseball bat or something, and he'd break it up, and everybody would scatter. And I, I can still recall whoever the extra kid was, uh, either a neighbor or one of our friends, They'd always say, Mr. T, you can't hit me. I'm not your son. He says, that's not true. As long as you're on my property, you're one of my kids. And he'd hit him too. So uh, that's how it worked in the Trapuca family. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And, of course, Johnny goes nuts. So I'm getting first time thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 73. Thanks for joining me. Today, I'm excited to welcome Kelly Chapuka to the show. This is the first of a two-part release, only the second time in the podcast's history that a guest episode has become a two-parter. The other, great friend of the show, Jim McElvain, and that was in episodes 39 and 40. A huge thanks to Chris, who is Kelly's brother, who very kindly helped me connect with Kelly and therefore made this chat possible. Our conversation was recorded over two days, almost three weeks apart. For context, which will make perfect sense when you listen, I've added brief radio static sounds that let you know the chat is switching from the first to the second recording, and this allowed me to edit the conversation together into a chronological order. Part one of our chat covers the unique sporting history of the Chapuka family. You'll learn just how talented Kelly and his siblings are. Plus, we briefly cover the career of Frank Chapuka, Kelly's father, and the recent re-retiring of his famous number 18 for the Denver Broncos, a number that NFL superstar Peyton Manning had on loan during the final seasons of his stellar career. We then dive into the wonderful history of Kelly's early sporting life, his memories of playing many high school sports, his decision to attend the University of Notre Dame, the 1981 NBA draft, and his fascinating first two NBA seasons with the Detroit Pistons. As a rookie, he was named an NBA All-Star and went on to make the All-Rookie team. In his second season, he was third in the NBA in points per game, behind only Alex English and Kiki Vandeweghe. Kelly exploded for a 56-point performance against the Chicago Bulls in his second season, breaking then-record holder the legendary Dave Bing for the franchise's single-game scoring high. Those are just some of the many topics covered in Part 1. Stay up to date with my podcast and subscribe to my monthly email newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes, future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and much more. Simply visit inallannis.com slash news. Show notes for this episode, including links to numerous topics covered, are at inallairness.com slash 73. Towards the end of the episode, I'll also share another great podcast review. You can add yours by visiting inallairness.com slash review. Now, onto the show. My guest today was a third-team All-American at Notre Dame, 
He was a first-round NBA draft pick and an all-star in his rookie year. He played 10 seasons in the NBA, and his family's background in sports is nothing short of prolific. Kelly Chapuka, thanks for joining me. Adam, pleasure to be with you. It's uh, awesome to have a chance to chat with you today. And, and first up, I want to thank your brother, Chris, because he helped us actually connect today. So uh, it was great of him to actually help us do that. So thanks to him. Speaking of family, researching for our chat today, I've learned that you're one of seven children. And I quickly realized that the Chapuka name is absolutely stacked with talent when it comes to sport. Your father, Frank, played quarterback at Notre Dame and then went on to have a great pro career in the NFL and a few other leagues. And then there's your brothers, who are great players in their own right. And then not to be outdone, a newspaper article that I read about your sister, Heather, apparently she dropped 56 points, might have even been a bit more than that in a high school intramural game. So I can't begin to imagine some of the backyard battles you must have had. Do you mind just elaborating on that incredible history within your own family? Well, Adam, first of all, thanks. Sports has meant so much to all our family. Um, you know, we grew up on sports. It's been very good to us. It's been better to some rather than others. But uh, it started with my father. Um, as you mentioned, he uh, played at Notre Dame and uh, played 15 years of professional uh, football between the NFL, uh, the Canadian League, and then he started in the AFL. In fact, was the first quarterback of the Denver Broncos back in 1960 through the first touchdown pass in AFL history. Wow. So that's something they can never take away from you. Um, only one of three Broncos to ever have their number retired, along with John Elway and Floyd Little. And of course, I'm sure people have read about that uh, Peyton Manning wore my father's number uh, before my dad passed about three years ago. Peyton called because 18 was his number throughout his pro career. And uh, he wondered whether my father would allow him to wear it. My father gave him his blessing. I don't want to give you a long uh, drawn out story, but uh, they had contact. Uh, my father was uh, had some dementia and, you know, was in kind of failing health. But uh, he knew about, obviously, Peyton Manning, the Manning family and all the success they've had. And uh, he had no problem with Peyton wearing his number. Um, you know, Peyton says, I understand that uh, retired numbers are sacred and they shouldn't be touched. But uh, my father, without a doubt, didn't hesitate to say, no, you go ahead and wear it and uh, enjoy it. Um, you know, it was just kind of like on a borrowed basis because it was retired. But he gave his blessings. And uh, uh, one of the last things my father said to Peyton Manning was, uh, wear it in good health and go out and win a Super Bowl. And guess what? They won a Super Bowl last year. <laughs> in fact, the whole family is going out to Denver, uh, Adam, in a couple of weeks because they're going to re-retire the three numbers. So John Elway's, Floyd Little, and my father's, and they're going to put a little uh, mention of, of Peyton wearing uh, his number. Peyton's going to be there, and we're going to raise the numbers to the rafters at uh, at Mile High Stadium. So, but back to where you know sports had been so good. You know, my dad, everybody knew my father and his background, and you know he never pushed sports onto us. It was something we you know elected to do. He just basically wanted us to stay busy and stay out of trouble. Mm -hmm. He never gave us you know everything we wanted. It was he gave us what we needed. I give a lot of credit to my older brother, Tracy, uh, who played, uh, was an All-American at Lafayette College and was drafted by the New York Knicks. End up, you know, back when they had the uh, the great teams with Walt Frazier and DeBusher and Bradley and Willis Reed and those guys. Uh, he was one of the last cuts twice by the Knicks and ended up going to play overseas in Switzerland. But uh, I think you, you kind of follow who's ahead of you. He had a twin sister. Heather was way before her time because she's about six feet tall. 
didn't really have women's sports back in that day. Right. So she played intramural and she was pretty good. But then I think it was just a matter of all the brothers following one another. I had a brother, Mark, uh, after Tracy, who was a quarterback at the University of Massachusetts. Then my next brother, Todd, also went to Lafayette and played basketball. He was a real good football player, but wanted to play basketball in college and really was a self-made basketball player. Uh, My brother had a little help in getting him into college, and he was like, at one time, like the fifth leading scorer uh, one year at Lafayette uh, in the NCAAs. And uh, then my next brother, TK, who's two years older than me, was a basketball player at 6'9", went to Fordham University. Mm-hmm. And then myself, and I had a younger brother, Chris, who you mentioned earlier, and he played football up at Boston College. So, you know, we kind of just kind of followed one another. You know, my parents, God bless them, they must have saw more games than uh, anybody humanly possible <laughs> uh, trying to get to college games and then high school games. And they saw three or four games a week. And you got to remember, we all played different sports as well. It wasn't just one sport. It was always emphasized to play different sports because you learn different things that help you in different sports. And, you know, you have different teammates. Sometimes you have the same teammates. So, uh, you know, my father always said, you know, if you're going to do something, do it right. We used to practice and, you know, pick up games and things like that. As you mentioned a little bit before, we're in the backyard where the, the best games in town where we grew up. At that time, I was a little too young to play. And that used to make me mad because um, I thought I was good enough. But uh, we'd always pick up a, a kid in the neighborhood and the games never ended because we'd always get into fights. And then my father would come out with a shovel or a rake or a baseball bat or something and he'd break it up and everybody would scatter. And I, I can still recall whoever the extra kid was, uh, either a neighbor or one of our friends, They'd always say, Mr. T, you can't hit me. I'm not your son. He says, that's not true. As long as you're on my property, you're one of my kids. And he'd hit him too. So uh, that's how it worked in the Trapuca family. It was a great place to grow up. We grew up in Bloomfield, New Jersey. And uh, uh, the biggest thing we ever did, we had a, a great high school tradition for basketball. And we had a guy that named George Sella, C-E-L-L-A. And he was legendary in the, in the state of New Jersey. Uh, won over 500 games. He was like the John Wooden of, of high school uh, where we were. And the goal for all of us was to play for our high school team and to play for George Sella. And that was one of my fondest memories because uh, I used to go see my older brothers play and I saw them all play all through their high school careers mm-hmm. until it was you know my turn. And as a kid, I, I never thought about anything other than if I made it, it was being a member of the, the Bloomfield Bengals and uh, playing for George Sella. So I still have great memories of that and uh, was fortunate to have a great career. But, uh, you know, sports has been tremendous for all of us, whether it was Pop Warner football or basketball. Uh, uh, a lot of brothers played football. I played a little soccer. A few of us played track and field. So uh, we were always busy. I, I don't know where we'd be without uh, without sports, Adam. That's, that's kind of the the nuts and bolts of the Trapuca family. Sports has been everything to us. Uh, my mother would say we got all our athletic ability from her, which is kind of a joke, haha. But uh, <laughs> uh, I tell you what, my parents were our biggest fans, and uh, uh, they made sure they came to all the games that their kids played. So uh, it says a lot about them as well. It sure does. And, yeah, it just sounds like an incredible uh, background growing up surrounded by all that and having such a, a tight-knit family unit as well. Um, I read that you spent a few summers playing with your brothers in the Jersey City Collegiate League. 
you could almost field a starting lineup yourself just with Trapukas by the sounds of things. <laughs> How was the, your memory of some of those games that you actually played alongside your brothers? Maybe the most fond memories I have. Um, I, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, make a drastic comparison, but uh, you know that's right up there with playing in the NBA. You know these leagues that were started at that time. Bob Hurley, the great high school basketball coach, was responsible for that uh, when I was in college, and he had an outdoor league where he bought actual indoor baskets outside to Pershing Field in Jersey City. So you had glass backboards, and at that time that was unheard of. That was something new, you know. So he actually, you know, the indoor baskets that you see in the arenas, he had them come outside, and we had under lights and and played uh, over in Jersey City. Uh, my father sponsored the team, his his beer distributorship. So we were we were trip distributors. Oh, nice. Trip is short for Trapuca. That's what uh, he had a, a Miller beer distributor for you know twenty five thirty years in Patterson. That covered the three largest counties in New Jersey, Bergen, Hudson, and Passaic County. He was our sponsor, and uh, he had great talent, guys uh, locally from New Jersey and New York that came over and played. Uh, uh, the, boy, that was just a lot of fun. We, we had a great team. We won it all, and, of course, we celebrated with, uh, with some kind of Miller beer or whatever. And uh, <laughs> that turned into going down once I graduated from college, went down and played in the Jersey Shore League. Um, which was a, a big thing around here. You know, I did that for 12 or 13 years in the summers between uh, every off season. Oh, okay. Wow. Unfortunately, that catches up to you. And I think that's why I'm paying the price now with my knees playing outside. You would never get these guys to go play outside. But these games were all outside on the uh, Macadam, you know, blacktop. And, you know, when you're young, you're invincible. So I'm sure too many games outside has maybe caught up to me. But uh I loved playing summer basketball. I mean, that's that's where you learned how to play, and uh, whether it was just pickup games in in Bloomfield at a place called Brookside Park, which my brothers, you know, maybe I'm going to say maybe two miles down the road on on the main street that we lived on, uh, you'd go down there in spring and summer from May to August, four or five nights a week. You have fifty guys down there. Wow. And some great talent. And you better win because, you know, if you lost, it took you a while to get back into a game because there were so many guys in line. So unless they were a guy short, you know, winner stays on and next group goes on. We went down there and I was I was actually one of the afterthoughts early on because my brothers would go down there and, and they would tell me I was too young. And then uh, that's kind of where I made my mark uh, when I was about in eighth or ninth grade. They finally took me along and and I was playing against you know nobody knows how old you are or whatever you know there's mostly college guys and people like that i was playing against guys that were five six seven years older than me and i think my brother started to notice that hey kel's pretty good <laughs> he's kicking that guy's butt you know and this guy's in college i'm in ninth grade or whatever so uh now they wanted to take me every day to play and then you know that's that's kind of where we honed our skills and obviously once you go off the into high school, I, I played in a in a summer league down in East Orange. You know that that was great talent, and that was kind of by accident because uh, I remember my father was head of uh, the fifth quarter club here in Bloomfield. That was like the kind of the booster club for the high school, and he used to host a picnic at our house uh, every summer for all the boosters. You know, hundred some odd people, whatever. And I remember one summer I was like in. Uh, eighth or ninth grade because this all of a sudden this little black gentleman came walking up the driveway and he looked at a place somebody asked him can i help you and he said i'm looking for tk who was my next oldest brother i played in high school tk's two years older than me and uh he started talking to him and i was curious 
of what he said. What was that all about? And he says, oh, this guy says he's, they're running a summer league over in East Orange. He says, wow, yeah, he asked me if I wanted to play, and it sounded pretty good. So he said, I'm going to go over. Of course, now he's going over, and I'm jealous because <laughs> I want to play. You know, So I couldn't wait for him to go over there and see how it was and play, and then sitting up, couldn't wait for him to come home after the first game. I said, how was it? How was it? He goes, you know, it was really good. It was packed, a lot of people outside, great court. He said, but we stink, <laughs> our team. So he said, the good thing is, he says, if I know anybody, I can bring them the next game. You want to go? <laughs> and I was like a kid in a candy score. I was, I was excited because you're always looking to get better and you want to, you know, you play against, you know, good people. And I was, you know, still young. I was like, you know, only in ninth grade or whatever. So I'm not even in high school yet. So sure enough, I went over there. We drive up and the place is packed. We're kind of the only white people in the park, but that doesn't matter, you know. But they were excited, and it was, uh, and I was like, oh, wow. This, I was like, you know, just eyes wide open going, this is crazy. TK uh, was in high school, so he knew a lot of these guys from playing against them in high school, whether it was Orange, East Orange, you know, local county that we, we live in and, and a lot of the teams that we play. So he knew some of these guys, and I knew who they were because I, you know, go to watch the game. So I knew a lot of these guys, but they were just older than me. Sure enough, we warm up, and uh, I'm a guy. this is like the biggest thing in my life right now. So we warm up, and sure enough, we start after the game starts. He doesn't know who the coach, guy named Mike McNair, little tiny guy, about five foot five. He was the one that came to the picnic. He was just coaching, and uh, so we're watching the game. We're like losing by like you know twenty or whatever, and it's not going good. And you know he's getting frustrated and just looking to to do something. And all of a sudden, like in a second, yeah. He just turns to me and says, ah, why don't you go in and see what you can do? He doesn't know me from a hole in the wall. <laughs> Neither does anybody else other than I'm TK's brother. <laughs> I go in and make a long story short, <laughs> I end up helping us bringing us back. I have like 20 points and we come back and win the game. <laughs> and this little guy, Mike McNair, our coach, was running around like Jimmy Valvano did when they won the national championship <laughs> for North Carolina State looking for somebody to hug. <laughs> and he's going over to everybody. And finally, he comes up to TK and he grabs TK after the thing and grabs him by the shirt with two fists and he shakes him and he goes, you got any more brothers at home? <laughs> so, well, from that point on, Adam, I was like big, you know what, in, in East Orange. <laughs> the next game, I got kids that are saving uh, for TK and I, saving us a parking spot. <laughs> they see us coming down the street to the uh, park. And they got a spot right in the corner reserved for our car. And they're telling everybody, the white boy's here, the white boy's here. <laughs> and from that point on, that's kind of like uh, we were big things. And, of course, they knew me later on once I started playing high school. And, uh, you know, summer league basketball, that's my point. Summer league basketball was just the greatest thing from, from East Orange uh, over to, to Jersey City, down to the Jersey Shore League, you know, nights at Brookside. I mean, that's, that's where you made your mark. And, and I tell you what. You could make an argument that was that was as fun as anything you did in college and in the NBA. It was really that special. A lot of fun. That's fantastic. I really appreciate you sharing these sort of memories, and it shows how it just further develops your desire to want to play the game and just become a better and better player. And this is only in you know as before you've even entered high school and get into your college years. That's how you get better. There's no question about it. You have to play. You know, you can be big fish in your team or on your block or whatever, or even in town. But once you get to that point, you know, my thought was always, well, okay, I'm, I'm good against these guys. Now, let's see how good I am against the guys in the next town or the, you know, the, the next county over or whatever. You're always looking for the next big thing because you got to compare yourself. 
that's the problem. Everybody thinks, oh, yeah, I'm good, you know, because I'm beating, you know, kids I play against all the time who aren't very good. You got to go find the competition, you know. And by the way, the name of that park down in East Orange was Elmwood Park. So, you know, from Elmwood Park to Pershing Field to the headliner down in uh, the Jersey Shore, you know, these are all the places. We used to go find places to play, you know. And even when we weren't playing in leagues, we were just playing at Brookside. If you heard about a place that was pretty good pickup games, you'd go over there because you just wanted to see better guys, you know, and compare yourself. That's what made me who I became was the competition and trying to compete against guys that were, were good. I wanted to find out who were the other good guys, where were they playing, and compete against them. And I think that was great, great preparation, not only high school for me, but for college and for the pros. There's no question about it. The pickup basketball. Summertime basketball, uh, summer league basketball, that was as important as anything I ever did in playing. And I had as much fun as I've ever played basketball in those leagues. That's awesome to hear. So you said that you played during the summers for well over 10 years. So you're talking about going throughout most of your pro career as well. You'd still play in summer leagues. Every summer. Every summer. Wow. Now they probably restrict it. They don't allow you. They didn't want you to. But, you know, what are you going to do? Just working out, you have to play. Even when you're a pro, you got to get better. You can't just shoot around. You got you got to you got to stay in shape and play. You know, unfortunately for us, it was playing outside most of the time. Mm. You know, but you never thought about it. You didn't think about you know getting hurt or you know later on you know what it's going to do to your your body or whatever. You just wanted to compete. It was fun. You played. I mean, it was like 100 degrees. You know, and you're, <laughs> you know, hot and humid in New Jersey down in the summer league and. Go down to the headliner where we played Jersey Shore League for a good 12, 13 years. There are nights there where the breeze was blowing. You had to play the breeze. I mean, you'd shoot free throws and you'd aim a foot over to the left because you knew the ball was going to blow back to the middle. And it took a special skill how to do that. We used to have tin backboards down there, too. This wasn't like Pershing Field where you had regular glass backboards. You had tin backboards. So it was an art to shoot a bank shot. You know, nobody shoots a bank shot now. Tim Duncan was like the last one to shoot like to use the backboard. Down there, I could shoot that ball and I could hit that hit that backboard and it would just die off the backboard into the thing. I knew every angle to shoot bank shots. You had to know as well as the wind. You had to play the wind. There's some days it was really breezy and if you, you put up a, a bad shot, it would blow off course by three feet. But it was an art form to tell you that. But those games, I mean, we'd have a couple hundred people at those games and the bar was right next door and it was, you know, free drinks after. So you know, that was all good. Sounds like there's some great memories there and some great times we had on the court and off. And also, thanks for sharing that information about the Manning family too. That's a really a great achievement as well, to have that number re-retired again in a future uh, ceremony not too far away. So, yeah, really interesting stuff. And it was good to see that uh, Peyton was willing to actually even call and speak to your father to ask if it was okay to wear that number. Yeah, I actually saw him, uh, Adam, um I knew about him asking my father, and then when my, my dad passed, they actually were in, in town uh, a couple of years ago to play the Giants. He reiterated the story and how much he appreciated uh, my father saying yes to him. He says I, he didn't really want to make that call because he felt in his own mind that I shouldn't be doing this because, again, numbers that are retired are sacred. You shouldn't mess with them. But somebody convinced him or he had heard some rumor that my father would be willing to do that, my mother and father. And, and my mother and father had so much respect for the Manning family and the success that they've had that, uh, you know, my mom kind of spoke for my dad in, in some ways. And uh, he was more than, than willing to do that. You know, my father never looked at the number as, you know, 
something that nobody could have. He just kind of looked at it as it's a number, you know. But when you look at who was asking, I mean, how do you say no to Peyton Manning with, with the career that he's had and his family background, maybe in similar way, ways, a smaller version of the Trapuca family. I mean, they're, they're so classy and, and he was so classy and he handled it so well. And I, I, you know, meeting him and talking to him or whatever, I think he was scared. In fact, he kind of told the story where talking to my dad, where, where I just told you about uh, my father and, you know, once you're on the property, you're, you're one of his. Yep. He kind of told the story where I felt like if I didn't say yes, I'll do it, that he was going to come to the phone and maybe deck him as well. So uh, <laughs> so that that's how Peyton Manning saw it. So we're looking forward to going out and seeing him and him being part of this uh, this number retirement and raising the number. Because according to the Broncos, they're going to uh, they're going to put my father's name, you know, real big on the top, like a normal number. And they're just going to have a, a little mention on the bottom, obviously, because Peyton Manning's uh Four years with the with the Broncos and going to the Super Bowl twice and then finally winning the last. But uh, they they just want to make sure that everybody knows that this is Frank Chapuka's number and it was just borrowed by Peyton Manning. So uh, I think they'll handle it well. And uh, you know, again, watching Peyton Manning and what he's done, uh, I don't think my father had any second thoughts or uh, about not even doing this for Peyton Manning. So it's worked out well. It's just kind of ironic that uh, what my dad said to him and then they end up winning and. Uh, so we're looking forward to the whole process in a couple of weeks out in Denver. That's fantastic. It's a, a touching story too. Only in the last week or so, your family traveled to Denver as the Broncos unveiled retired number banners, and one of which honors your father, who was the franchise's uh, first quarterback who wore number 18. How was the pregame ceremony, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, was attended by an equal number 18 family members? Is that correct? Yeah, that just happened to work out that way, Adam. Um, they did a great job. It was a lot of fun. It was uh, great for my dad. And, um, you know, the Broncos only had three numbers uh, retired in the franchise history since 1960. So I uh, figure that's uh, 56 years now. Uh, and only three numbers have ever been retired. My father's was the first after he finished playing in the 64 season. And then uh, a few years later on in the 70s, Floyd Little, who was number 44. Of course, John Elway was great and won a couple of Super Bowls as, uh, with the Denver Broncos. So, uh, you know, and then before Peyton Manning asked to, uh, to borrow my father's number, uh, he got a special uh, mention at the bottom of my father's jersey. So, um, you know, there are representatives of all three. You know, John Elway was there and uh, a couple of his daughters and a grandson and Floyd Little and, and his wife. And then uh, there ended up being 18 Tribucas out there. So that was kind of just coincidental. And, uh, game happened to be on the 18th of September. So number 18 on the 18th with 18 people. So <laughs> somehow it was meant to be Adam, but, uh, you know, they did a nice job. It was nice because we don't get together very, very often. Uh, I had a younger brother come from, from Texas and uh, most of us coming from New Jersey, but still you don't see the, the immediate family, the seven kids get together uh, very often. So we were all out there. They all made it. Uh, a lot of nieces and nephews and one great-grandchild of my mother and father was there as well. So uh, we went out there for a couple of days, uh, flew out on Saturday in beautiful weather. You know, some walked around the, the town and uh, others relaxed because it was such an early morning, watched some college football and then uh, uh, went to dinner on Saturday night. And then uh, Sunday we got prepared for the game and they drove us over to the stadium. We got to walk around and visit the uh, the monuments that they have there for the all the players that were inducted to the Ring of Fame. You know, there's about, I don't know, I'm going to say about 18 to 20 players. So they have these six foot tall 
I guess you would call them statues, but they're not really statues. They're like wooden wooden beams, and they have the 3D faces of the former players, obviously, including my father. They have a special area there that you can walk up and stand next to the uh, to the statues. And uh, so we took some pictures there, and it's right in the front of the stadium. Um, so we hadn't seen that. Uh, so we took a lot of pictures there and, and walked around the stadium, saw all the people tailgating and things like that. And then uh, we finally uh, went in and met the uh, personnel from the Broncos. They took us in the stadium, and we Stood on the field for a while, watching warm-ups and uh, preparing for the ceremony, which was done before the game. And uh, it was very well done. You know, once uh, you know, it got close to game time, they put us out three sections, uh, the Trapukas and then the Littles and then the Elways, uh, right in the end zone. They introduced and showed little highlights of, of each player and what they meant to the franchise. And then one by one, up in the top corner of one of the end zone, they had these... Uh, I don't know what you would call it, but they, they, they put the numbers. They're, they're banners, but they were on, you know, backing. So, uh, you know, these are like 10 foot high and they were covered in black. And then one by one, they took them down for each uh, as they introduced each individual player. And it was, the you know, obviously number 18 and number 44 and then number seven. Did the national anthem. They had to fly over. That was cool. And then we went up into a box and we watched the game. It was a great game. They beat the Colts and... Uh, we walked around after the game and uh, went into the Broncos uh, store, you know, where you can buy T-shirts and things like that. And, you know, met some people and, you know, people come up and talk to you and want to know who you are and whatever. So uh, uh, that was fun. And then we uh, we flew home on Monday. So it was a very well done ceremony. We had a lot of fun. We were glad we went and uh, it worked out great. And the weather was beautiful. Yeah, I was going to say the, the couple of great photos that your brother Chris shared that have turned up on a few websites and I'll include those photos in the show notes of this episode as well. There's one where you've got the seven children in the family, yeah, as you mentioned, standing next to the uh, the statue or the, the bust or whatever you might call it. Yeah, yeah, that was good, right. Fantastic. And then there's a great photo of you guys uh, right near the actual field itself with the, the crowd in the background. It looked like a stunning day, so uh, great memory. So I'll share those in the show notes. Yeah, one of the photos we took was with Jim Nance, who's a good friend of mine. He actually called the game for CBS. Oh, nice. Jim Nance and I were neighbors uh, in Utah when I played by accident, kind of. And, you know, it's funny because we're the same age. So Jim and I have known each other for 30 years. He and his wife at that time, we kind of met by accident. His condo and my condo were literally 10, 20 feet away. All right. We don't remember a call exactly whether I took a package for him or he took a package for me. Uh, But either way, package came and we had to take it over to him or he took it over to me. And that's kind of how we met. And as it turns out, he's from New Jersey. You know, we're the same age. So, uh, you know, we all know what Jim Nance ended up becoming. That was before he actually worked for CBS. Yeah, that's right. Because I think he was the analyst along with uh, Hot Rod Hunley, wasn't he, for the Jazz Network? Right. He did some stuff for the Jazz at the time. He was doing some local news and things like that. And uh, he had told us at the time that CBS was looking for a new uh, head anchor, call it whatever, the voice of CBS. Yep. And uh, somebody had sent in his resume, and he was like one of five guys, um, probably the least known of all the uh, the five that were up for the job. Wow. And as it turns out, long story short, he ends up getting a job, and he's been there since. So, uh, But anyways, Jim's from uh, from down in Marlboro. He went to Marlboro High School, which is uh, down by in Colts Neck, not, you know, about an, not even an hour from here, 45 minutes or so. So, uh, you know, he played basketball in high school and uh, golf and ended up going to University of Houston. And he was uh, roommates with Fred Couples and a couple other, Blaine McAllister, who was a PGA professional. So, But uh, Jim and I became very, uh, very good friends. 
being the same age and being from New Jersey or whatever. So he was he was doing the game on on Sunday and he came down in the field before the game, took some pictures with us. So uh, oh, fantastic! Uh, with the whole family, so he knows he knows most of my family, and it was great. Somebody said I haven't seen it yet because I haven't had time to watch the replay of the game, but I guess he gave a mention to what what transpired uh, during the third or fourth quarter. Um, gave a shout out to my my dad and and the rest of the family. So uh, it was all good. We had a great time. Oh, that's fantastic. And uh, yeah, some great memories, no doubt as well. And he's obviously one of the all-time greats and teamed up with Billy Packer for who knows how long doing the NCAA. Jim's still been doing that. He still does NCAA, does, you know, obviously the NFL football and, uh, you know, everybody knows him for the NCAA uh, finals and things like that. So uh, yeah, and I knew Billy Packer and there's another guy that uh, I knew very well. So, uh, you know, and Billy used to do the games with uh, Dick Enberg and Al McGuire when I was in college. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, that was that was the threesome they used to all call the national games. Al McGuire, Billy Packer, and Dick Enberg would, would do the games. So, uh, you know, and then Jim got involved, and, you know, now he's NFL and NCAA basketball. And uh, so the fact that uh, I became very good friends with not only Billy Packer, but with uh, Jim Nance, and, uh, you know, that's now 30 years later. Now, you mentioned Bloomfield High School. Uh, not only did you excel in basketball, but uh, as I briefly mentioned before we started recording, in high school as well, you were an all-state soccer player and you set some school records in high jump, javelin and the shot put. So you're multi-talented to say the least. I believe in your senior season there, you averaged about 36 points a game and then you got to the state semifinals and scored 52. So incredible stuff. Did you actually have any time to study? <laughs> you don't play. Uh, either with George Seller or my parents, if, you, if, if you're not up in the classroom, you're not going to be up on the basketball court. Yeah, you had to put in the work at, at any level. You still have to do it. You know, if you, if you want to play, you, you got to put in the, the time in, in the classroom as well. But, uh, you know, I was fortunate that uh, I had a lot of good teachers and, you know, I wasn't the uh, a 4.0 straight A student, but uh, I did pretty well in the classroom and did enough uh, that... Uh, you know, you stay on top of things and get yourself into a good college. But, uh, you know, high school for me was a great, great time of my life because, uh, you know, that's when you start getting some freedoms and uh, you start doing some other things. Uh, like I said, I played soccer and that kind of just kind of came about by accident. Ended up becoming an all-state soccer player, had scholarship offers to go play soccer. Wow. Used to play baseball, loved baseball, but uh, a couple of my brothers were track and field guys and I kind of fell in love with that. And was kind of self-taught in the javelin and high jump. Never high jumped before in my life. <sighs> I jumped like six four my my sophomore year, and then like six seven my junior year. <laughs> so I was kind of on my way to about a seven foot high jumper. But I had some tendonitis in my knees my senior year, probably from too much basketball, or whatever. So I couldn't high jump my senior year. Oh, I was really good at the javelin, and people, you know, don't know much about the javelin unless you you really throw it. It's not like throwing a baseball. There's technique to it. And I was the Eastern States champion my senior year through like 217 feet and had scholarship offers to go do that. And it was always funny because when you know, I was getting recruited in basketball by my sophomore year, you know, I scored a thousand points my senior year alone, which uh, was only done once or twice in state history. And as you mentioned, I averaged 36 points a game. But that didn't mean anything because you mentioned that semifinal loss in the States where we lost uh by two points to North Bergen High School. And I had, I think, 54. You might have said 52. I think it was 54, but wow. who's counting? But uh, <laughs> I still regret that to this day because my whole goal was to win another state championship for George Sella. 
And I feel like I failed in that regard. It still stings. I'll never forget that. But, uh, you know, so I was getting recruited at an early age. And then uh, these other schools started being interested in, in myself for uh, soccer and, and track and field. And uh, some of the coaches would say, hey, you know, to, to my uh, specific coach in high school, uh, um, we want to offer Kelly a scholarship. And the soccer coach would say, no, he's going to play basketball. The track coach at the college would say, what's he doing that for? He says, well, he's pretty good in basketball. And the guy would say, well, he can't be any better at basketball than he is at soccer. <laughs> you know, the guy had no idea. And the same thing happened with track. A couple of schools were going to let me do both. All right. I had schools that said, hey, you can play soccer and basketball if you want, or you can play track and basketball. But I wasn't doing that. And that was just all for fun to try to see what I could do. My track coach wanted me to be a decathlete, you know, because I threw the javelin. I threw the discus. I threw the shot put. Uh, I could long jump. I could high jump. The only thing I'd never, never tried was the pole vault, and I would assume the uh, the hurdles were not easy as well. So those were the only things, but uh, I didn't have enough time for that. And in between track practice and soccer practice, I'm still, you know, out in the backyard playing basketball and uh, and working on my game because I knew that uh, hopefully that I would have an opportunity to, to play at the next level. And uh, I think I made the right choice. Yeah, I think you did, but just some great <laughs> opportunities there that you've had along the way as well. So. Uh, just shows how great of an, an athlete you were. And of course, you had to make sure the study was up to date and uh, you kept your grades up as well. Always. Courtesy of the Sports Illustrated Vault, which is an excellent resource online, I was intrigued to read about a, a July 1977 tournament that you took part in. It was an AAU youth tournament. And the article focused mostly on games that were played in Florida. I don't know if it was a rotating to other other cities as well, but Players who took part included Albert King and Irvin Johnson, no less. Uh, in two of those games, you apparently knocked down 30 and then 41 points. Do you remember the tournament I'm talking about and what comes to mind when I mention that, uh, that time? I'll tell you, I'll give you two answers to that. I, I certainly remember the time. I don't remember the specific games. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if I had those. That was the national AAU tournament. Back in the day, unlike today, Adam, where AAU is like all year round, they play a hundred some odd games. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of it because I think it's, it's kind of ruined the game of basketball at every level. These kids are not learning the fundamentals of the game because when we played AAU, it was like a month. So you would play your AAU tournament during the month of May in your state so to speak. So New Jersey, you know, you, you, you got an AU team. There were, I don't know, eight, 10 teams or whatever. Mm-hmm. You'd have a month-long tournament, one or two games a week during the month, and, and you'd get a winner. That team would go to nationals and represent the state of New Jersey. So I played AU my junior and senior year. My junior year, I was on the team. We lost in the finals to another team. And the rules at that time allowed the team who won could take one other guy from another team as kind of like, you know, a free choice if he wanted to go, to go with them to Nationals. Well, we lost in the finals. That team asked me if I wanted to go with them. And, of course, I said yes. And that year, my junior year, I think we went to Ohio, was was the national tournament. So then you get all the teams from the different states coming there. The following year, my senior year, we won it all, and we took another kid from another team, and we went to Florida. And that's where the national tournament was. Now, you got to remember, my class was a very, very well-known class with a lot of good players. It was stacked. Irvin Johnson, Albert King, Gene Banks, a kid named Wayne McCoy, uh, Darnell Valentine, Jeff Ruland, 
There was a picture, and you might have seen this, Adam, since you do your homework so well. <laughs> there was a picture later on uh, before my sophomore year. So that would have been uh, 78, 79. So it would have been probably the fall of 78. Sports Illustrator ran a, a feature story inside with a fold-out picture called The Class with Class. And we were in a Chicago hotel all wearing tuxedos, and they picked what would amount to be like the super sophomores. And that was, you know, guys like Irvin Johnson were on there, myself, Jeff Rulin, Albert King, uh, Gene Banks, Danny Ainge. Um, there were 10 of us, uh, Herb Williams. Anyways, I think every guy in that picture, those 10 guys end up becoming NBA players. Incredible. And I, I actually didn't come across that photo. I wish I had, and I'm going to look for it. You should look. That's your homework for the next time. Definitely. Go find that. Because I have that picture hanging up in, in my room in here. I get a lot of comments of people who, who've seen that or have that. It's a fold-out picture. So it's you just picture opening up Sports Illustrated with two sides. Mm -hmm. And we're all in this really nice-looking hotel lobby in Chicago. So I know we took it in Chicago. And we're all wearing tuxedo tails. Ah, uh, awesome! You look that up. You'll find it. You'll be you'll be very impressed. I also heard you found the the class with class photo. I did indeed. It's fantastic. Absolutely love it. I told you. I couldn't find it initially after we chatted. I looked for it straight away after we ended the call, and then I had a, a good deep dive again uh, about a week or so ago when I ended up emailing you the photos to show you that I, I had it, but all the amount of talent in the room as well, and to have you looking so stately. <laughs> I'll include some photos in the show notes to this episode so listeners can, can see how great it is, but do you remember much about the photo shoot itself? Were they trying to get people to have particular looks and the way they were postured? That was the whole idea of it, because somebody was going to call it the class with class, so... Obviously, the word class, you know, they wanted to put us in uh, tuxedos with tails, and uh, that's kind of what they were going at. That was a very popular uh, Sports Illustrated photo. Those guys end up becoming very, very good pro players as well. Yeah, just a, a great photo and uh, a great way to look back at a period of time in, in your life that I'm sure your family have got a kick out of as well, having a look at over the years too, no doubt. Well, it's something. it's something that we would, I don't want to say take for granted for lack of a better phrase, and you know, someone like you who wouldn't get that kind of uh, coverage. So that would probably be really cool for for people that don't get a whole lot of that stuff and then look back and see exactly how it's covered. It's a lot different now. You get a lot more stuff. Back then, uh, if you were a kid or whatever, you know, where you're from, that would be big news. Here in Australia, 1989 was when I first stumbled upon the NBA just by chance recording a few games off TV. We used to get one game a week. We still didn't get a whole lot of magazines, and uh, I'm sure Sports Illustrated was available to get, but I don't know in what sort of uh, format it may have been. I think that's what actually makes it even more enjoyable, is trying to find these things that, as you say now, the stuff's everywhere. There's social media everywhere and whatever else, but... Yeah, it's a big difference. You know, you look back and, you know, when you were a kid or whatever, and that photo was the fall of 78 or something, but, uh, you know, whether you're in Europe or Australia or whatever, you know, you don't get that type of following like you do now because you can get everything off of social media. You know, to go back there and maybe see what you missed or didn't know, you know, that's like a kid in a candy store. So for us, it was, you know, we went through it. So it's old hat. You know, same thing with, uh, with the Hornets and stuff like that when that first started. And makes me sick last night watching what's going on down in Charlotte. I'm actually very, very ticked off on uh, these protests and they're tearing my city up down there, which is ridiculous. But uh, that's for another time. Yeah, very sad news as well. And I think even the Hornets Arena actually got looted, the team shop. 
I knew exactly where they were because I've been down there plenty of time. And that's that that street that they're all on. That's the epicenter is what they call it right there. There's all restaurants and that's where you go eat and things, places to hang out. And then another couple hundred yards down the road, you go underneath the uh, the tram and there's the arena on the left hand side and a hotel. I stayed next to the arena and, uh, you know, they're looting. And so these people are just it makes me so angry because it's one thing to protest. But then once you have a protest, you always get the scum that comes to town, wherever it is, call them professionals or whatever, that are just looking for trouble and there to make trouble. And, and these are the people, somehow they justify, you know, destroying other people's property and breaking windows and stealing stuff. Like, this will show you, you know, it's just, it, it really, it's, it's really sad. So for me to watch that last night, which I did for a couple hours, just it made me sick to my stomach. That's really tragic stuff. It's awful. Well said. But that was the AU tournament, so to speak. So there were a lot of good talent. And, of course, you know, Street and Smith was a big basketball magazine back then. Yes. You know, covered all the high school players or whatever. So, you know, guys like Irvin and, and, and Albert King and, um, and Gene Banks were kind of like the, you know, the three big names, uh, maybe a couple of the guys, you know, from our class. You know, they got the most publicity. So, uh to go down and play in that tournament with those guys or whatever gave you the first taste of, of, of playing against some nationally known guys. And, of course, I was fortunate to play in some of those uh, high school all-star games. You know, the McDonald's wasn't – I think it came the year after that. But I played in, like, the, the Derby Classic and the Dapper Dan was a big high school all-star game in, in Pittsburgh, and those guys all played in it. So uh, it's a lot different now. Again, going back to AAU, you know, there's 100-some-odd games. These kids become – they become immune to to losing. You know what I mean? When you play that many games, it's like, and I don't like that because you know they lose a game and they're they're numb mm-hmm. because they know in ten minutes there's another game, and then the coach throws the ball out, and they're not learning how to set screens or move without the ball or come off a screen or one dribble jump shot. It's it's all you know up and down three pointers. You get the ball off the rebound and then you shoot it. And unfortunately, in my opinion. That type of game has slowly crept from AU into the high school, into college, and now into the NBA. It's not as much team ball as it used to be. These kids are very individually talented, but I don't think fundamentally it, it helps their game, and I don't think the teams are not nearly as good as, as when I was fortunate to play, particularly in the NBA in the 80s. That's my opinion. You make an excellent point. And- it's all about, well, it seems to be all about the highlight reels these days and getting clips on YouTube so that you can get recognized and, and move up again and again to other levels. That's the evil of, of ESPN and the, the phone and uh, Twitter and all this other stuff that we didn't have back in the day. You know, I'll stand by to the day I die, uh, and hopefully that's a long time away, that, you know, the 80s were as good as the NBA has ever been. Yep. So when you look at the talent and the guys I played with and the teams and, you know, we, we didn't have these weakling teams, you know, that they have now. So, and, and hey, I'm not going to take anything away from there's some great individual players, whether it's LeBron or Steph or, or Kevin Durant or whatever. I just, the, the teams are just not as good. And they, they play a completely different game. Hey, hey, back when they put the three-pointer in, you know, when I just started in the NBA, it was it came in in like 1978 or nine or whatever, right around 80. Mm-hmm. I mean, first couple of years, we hardly ever took a three pointer because it wasn't considered a good shot. You only used it to catch up. Now you see it; it's it's just that's all they take is three pointers. So nobody really has the mid range game, and a lot of these kids, particularly in college 
where the three-pointer is short. They have no business taking three-pointers. But, you know, there's a lot of things I don't like about the game. But at the same time, you know, it, it's a different era. So, you know, to each his own. It's just one guy's opinion. But uh, it's it's certainly not the same. I agree wholeheartedly there. So for what that's worth. I'll also need to track down that photo now that you've talked about the fold-out photo from Sports Illustrated. You better. Can't wait to find that because I'm, uh, I'm livid I didn't find it before we chatted today because I'm sure it'll be an awesome awesome one to, to look at and see some of the people in the, uh, in the photo. Now, I'm sure that your college recruiting process was unique given your dad's links to Notre Dame, but do you mind just briefly chatting about what schools were closest to having you sign on the dotted line before you committed to Digger Phelps and the Fighting Irish? Yeah, no problem. That, that was easy, actually, because, you know, the whole recruiting process, I didn't really care for a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Again, it goes back to being busy, playing three sports, trying to fit in the opportunity to go visit some of these colleges. I mean, I was certainly thankful, and I had my choice of pretty much any college or university in the country. Um, you know, at that time, uh, you know, you go back to like UCLA with John Wooden, and, you know, he was kind of finishing up there. And, you know, I grew up watching those great teams uh, that he had you know, what kid wouldn't want to go to UCLA. But at that time for me, you know, I was trying to continue to play my different sports. And uh, you were allowed, I think, six visits at that time as part of the NCAA rules. I ended up only going to four different places because I just either couldn't find the time. And I really wanted to narrow this down because, you know, you get all your kid, you, get, you think it's cool that you get all these letters and, you know, they come to the basketball office or they come to your home and you got you know, stacks and boxes and, you know, just thousands of letters, Yeah. you know, and after a while, you know, they're just sending you something every day. And uh, I didn't really want to get involved in all this. I thought, well, let's try to narrow this down as quickly as possible. So for me, it ended up coming down. I ended up taking two visits in the fall of my, and this is another thing that's changed a lot. I didn't visit any place until the fall of my senior year. And I took two in the spring. So I didn't decide where I was going, I think until April of my senior year. These kids are committing now as sophomores. They got to change those rules with the NCAA. I, I just don't, they need to keep, keep these people out and, and let these kids just play and not not let them get, get full of themselves that early. It just, they get distracted. I mean, to be recruiting kids as eighth graders and ninth graders and 10th graders, I, I don't think they should be allowed to come to the schools and contact the kids until the start of their junior year. When September 1 of their junior year, okay, you know, now you can start sending them letters, talking to them, calling them or whatever. So, but uh, these kids that are 12, 13, 14, it's, it's too early. But uh, I end up taking a visit to, I went to Notre Dame and I went out there for a football game, which is what you have to go to. Yep. That's a must. So I was definitely going out there for a football weekend and, and visit, which I did. And I also went to, I went to Duke. And that was pre-Mike Krzyzewski. Bill Foster was the coach then. And I uh, really enjoyed that. And I think I also went to, um, I went to South Carolina, was coached by the legendary Frank McGuire. And I went there because um, he had a great connection. He's a New York guy. So he had a lot of guys from New York area, New York, New Jersey, where I'm from. So when he ran a great program. So uh, I, I went there, really wasn't leaning to there, but uh, I was curious. And uh, Columbia, South Carolina is a very nice place. And I went to the University of Maryland, which was coached by Lefty Giselle. So, I mean, I thought the visits were all kind of the same. Obviously, nothing's like a Notre Dame football weekend. You know, at that time, growing up in my family with my father, went to Notre Dame. His best friend and business partner was Angelo Bertelli, who was the Heisman Trophy winner in 1943. Okay, wow. 
we knew him as Uncle Bert. So uh, everybody just assumed I was going to Notre Dame, you know, because of my father, which really is not true. You know, as my father would have said, I went there, but I'm not going back. It's where you want to go. You're going to do the four years. You're you got to go where you want to go. You don't go where I went because uh, you know because I went there. You know, even though a lot of people still talked about, oh, you're going to Notre Dame. You're always going to Notre Dame. You know what? I almost went to Maryland. That was probably my second choice because Lefty Giselle was a a really good recruiter, a really nice guy. They ran a great program. It was very hard to say no to him. Uh, Duke probably would have been my third choice. Very nice campus, a lot like Notre Dame's campus. But uh, for the reason that I went to Notre Dame was at that time, they were an up-and-coming team. Uh, They were starting to get nationally known. It wasn't just everybody knew about the football program. What's not to know about the football program? So they were starting to make uh, some waves in the basketball world. Uh, Had a guy named Austin Carr, played for them back in the early 70s. He kind of put them on the map, was a great player. Then they they had uh, John Shoemate, Gary Brokaw, Adrian Dantley were a few years before me, and that's when they broke UCLA's 88-game win streak. So uh, I think they kind of put them on the map. And then a couple of years before I uh, I got there, they were playing some good basketball. And Notre Dame was an independent at the time, which was kind of strange because now it's it's like the, just the opposite. All kids want to be part of you know, a conference and whether it's the Big East or the ACC or the Pac-12 or whatever. At that time, Notre Dame was an independent. And I thought that was a, a positive because they didn't play, you know, the same teams all the time. Notre Dame played all over the country. We went down to Texas. We went back east to play in Madison Square Garden or the Palestra, out to California and played UCLA. We went up and played DePaul and Marquette. So uh, it seemed like Notre Dame was on TV every weekend on NBC. And I wanted to be a part of that. And as it turned out, we were on TV, it seemed like, every weekend because we had a great four-year run. We were like 90, I don't know, 93 and 27, um, very successful. And people saw me every weekend. And at that time, you know, playing four years in college, people couldn't believe I was still there. They thought I was there for eight years because they were so tired (laughs) of seeing me every week. They just thought I was in, you're still there? (laughs) So uh, that was probably the main reason, Adam, that I went to Notre Dame was it was the right time for the basketball and the opportunity to play on TV and play at a national schedule, play all over the country, and we played anybody. You know, we weren't afraid to play anybody. And uh, I don't have any regrets about the decision. I mean, South Bend winters are horrible. <laughs> uh, it's cold. It snows. I would have liked to have gone someplace warmer. But as far as my career and, you know, where I went and a great education and and uh, a national following, you know, if it wasn't on the map before I went or if it was close, we put them over the top because we had, uh, it was the toughest place to play. And we went to a final four, probably should have went to more than one. Uh, but we were a top 10 team all four years that, uh, that I was at Notre Dame. So, uh, that ended up being the reason why I went there. And, uh, I don't have any regrets about that. You had a super run those four years, really. Uh, you made the tournament, as you said, each season you were there. And I'm just going to go through a quick roll call of some of the great players that you were teammates with as well during this time. Bill Ambeer for two seasons, Orlando Woolridge all four years, uh, Bill Hanslick for three, and then Johnny Paxson for two. So I don't even know where to begin, but do you mind just sort of reminiscing a little bit about playing with these guys who all went on to have you know, great careers in the NBA as well? Well, I mean, I was fortunate that my graduating class, the, the guys that we bought in when I was a freshman, um, 
I was probably the most known of the of the five guys, but we were a very good class. I mean, Orlando Woolridge was not a nationally known guy. He was kind of raw, uh, certainly turned into a great player. God rest his soul. He passed away a few years ago, mm. you know, way too soon. But uh, he ended up becoming a, a, a longtime NBA player and, and did very well. Tracy Jackson was a very well-known kid out of uh, Silver Springs, Maryland, down by where DeMatha High School, a very well-known high school in the D.C. area. He was a great player, played in the NBA as well. Yep. A kid named Stan Wilcox, who's now the athletic director of Florida State, was out of New York, and uh, he was part of our class. And then a, a big, tall Mexican, Gilberto Salinas, seven foot, about 110 pounds he looked like. He was the <laughs> tallest person I'd ever seen. I mean, he was a tall drink of water, but he was my roommate my freshman year and a real nice kid. Uh, you know, didn't play a whole lot, but you know, that, that class was, was one of the, even maybe the most successful, if not one of the most successful classes at Notre Dame history. And, uh, you know, when you look back at my four years, Adam, we had like 11 guys that I played with end up going to the NBA. I mean, you mentioned some of them, but I can go back. When I was a freshman, two of the seniors were a kid named Dave Batten and a kid named Duck Williams. Uh, they were both captains. They both played in the NBA for a couple of years. Uh, didn't have long careers, but they were good players. And you mentioned Bill Lambeer. Also, another kid in that class was Bruce Flowers. He played in the NBA as well, along with Lambeer, who had a great career. Then Bill Hanslick was the year above me. And another kid who I thought was going to be an NBA player, but didn't quite make it, Rich Branning, a kid out of California, who we probably would have thought would have been a, a, a sure thing at the time, but he was one of the uh, last cuts of the Indiana Pacers, never made it to the NBA, but he was a real good player. And in my class, obviously, Orlando Woolridge played a long time. Tracy Jackson played in the NBA for a few years, myself. And then behind me, a couple of years after, uh, John Paxson, long career with the Bulls, a kid named Joe Klein, played a long time in the NBA, played one year in Notre Dame and transferred because his father did not like Digger. He was a big, tall, redheaded kid from Slater, Missouri, about 6'11". And then a kid named... Uh, Tom Sluby played a, a cup of coffee with the NBA as well. So, I mean, there, there's like 11 guys in, in that group during my four years. So that, that says a lot about the program that, that Notre Dame had. And uh, uh, it was a very, very talented group and probably should have been, I swear by, we should have been more, more successful than we were, even though we were very successful. I think sometimes having that many kids and that much talent, Digger did, quite didn't know what to do with it and tried to satisfy too many people. Mm rather than sticking with five or six, seven rotation. We used to say there was always a chair near the scorer's table of somebody going in and out. And I think that, that kind of frustrated a lot of people. But, uh, hey, we, we had great teammates. We all enjoy ourselves. Uh, we would have liked to have been a little more successful and go back to the, uh, go back to the Final Four. But uh, I think there's nothing you can take away from the success, that uh, at least that I had for my four years, because it was at the top. It was a stellar run for sure. I'd just like to touch on one game from the college run there before we just chat about the NBA. But you mentioned the final four there. You went up against uh, Sid Moncrief and his Arkansas Razorbacks. Um, what did you sort of make of the game uh, at the time looking back and the opportunity to possibly get to that championship game that just uh, fell short? I regret that it happened so soon. Maybe regret's a, a strong word. You come out of high school and then less than a year later, you're at the final four. I mean, I was fortunate and a very confident, you know, player at that time. So, you know, I went to Notre Dame. I wanted to play. Freshmen could play back then. I prepared myself that I was going to find a way to get on the floor. 
I never back down from anybody, and anybody that knows me as a player uh, would tell you the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a smart player. I was physically developed so I could handle it, and I was very confident. I didn't start the first couple of games, but as a freshman, I ended up about four or five games in, I became a starter. So I really worked at my game and, uh, and was prepared to, uh, to play. And uh, I was very successful my, my freshman year. You know, I knew my place and, um, uh, I was one of the leading scorers and, uh, I was the MVP of the, of the, uh, Midwest Regional my freshman year, uh, when we won and, and sent Notre Dame to its one and only, uh, final four. It's never happened since. And, uh, uh, but the problem for me was that it just happened so quick. You didn't have time to, uh, an old saying to stop and smell the, smell the roses. Uh, because, you know, again, it, it, it's, it's happening so fast. You go from that disappointment that we talked about earlier, Adam, in that state semifinal game. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, less than a year, I'm, I'm in St. Louis at the final four. That's kind of why I wish we would have gone back. I didn't really get to enjoy it as much. Because it happened so quickly, but uh, when you look at the teams that were there, Arkansas, you mentioned uh, they had three tremendous players: Ronnie Brewer, Sidney Moncrief, and Marvin Delph were very well-known players. All played in the NBA. They were a real good team. But we lost to Duke, where I just mentioned that I almost went there with Mike Jaminski, uh, Gene Banks, Jim Spinarkle. Um, that was a really good team, and I almost could have been a part of that team. Kind of ironic that we ended up playing them in the semifinals. We had blown through the tournament pretty much. We were playing really good. We played somebody at Oral Roberts, Houston, University of Houston. We beat them by 30 in the first round. And then we beat uh, University of Utah in the regional semi and then beat DePaul, who was a, a rival of ours. We played him during the regular season, coached by uh, the great Ray Meyer. And, uh, you know, they had a great team with uh, Dave Corzine and uh, Gary Garland and Clyde Bradshaw and uh, Mark Aguirre. Mm -hmm. You know, so that was a really good team. And we beat them to get to the Final Four. We won that game out in Kansas. And then we get to the Final Four. We got to play that Duke team that I just mentioned. And we had been playing so well, and for some reason, we had a terrible first half, just not the way we'd been playing. And fortunately, we got behind, but we played very well the second half and actually cut it to two and had the ball to tie the game, and we missed a shot, and we ended up going down by, you know, two or three. We might have had to foul or whatever, but, uh, you know, that first half really did us in, and that, that's really disappointing. Uh, because we were playing, it was just very uncharacteristic. You know, hey, Duke's a great team. Maybe they had something to do with it. But, you know, sometimes you shoot yourself in the foot. You know, you don't make shots. You turn the ball over. You know, you just don't get in the rhythm. And uh, we were able to get back in the game and play our game. If we had played like we did in the second half and the first half, we probably would have went on and played in the, in, the, uh, in the final. As it turned out, Kentucky was playing Duke in the final because Kentucky beat Arkansas. And Kentucky, we had played during the year as well. They were a big physical team, more like a football team, with, with Goose Gibbons and uh, Rick Roby and a kid named Phillips, who was just built just like, uh, like Roby. And they had Kyle Macy and a few other guys. But uh, we had lost to them by a point or two down in uh, Louisville right around Christmas. So we were assuming we were going to play them again and get revenge. But uh, it didn't work out. We end up losing, like I said, to Duke by two or three. And then uh, Kentucky was going to play uh, Duke after they beat Arkansas. And at that time, you had to play a consolation game, which they don't do that anymore. Yeah, I was wondering about that. 
Yeah, well, you don't want to go to the Final Four weekend and lose twice. No, that's right. That's why they don't do that anymore. But at that time, we had to turn around and play on Monday night before the final game between uh, Duke and Kentucky. We had to play Sidney Moncrief and Marvin Delph and Ron Brewer in a consolation game. And as it turns out, game's tied, and it's really a hard game to get up for because, you know, what are you playing for? The only thing you're playing for is you don't want to lose two games. Well, they come down, and Ronnie Brewer hits like a 30-footer at the buzzer. So we go to the Final Four in 1978, and we lose two games by a total of four or five points. You go 0-2, and you go, and I mean, that's that's really disappointing. It's tough, very tough. Yeah, I mean, you're just so close, and we could have easily been in the final game, and that was the game that Goose Gibbons went, went crazy against Duke and had like 40 points. But I think physically, we were the better matchup uh, for Kentucky because, one, we had played them, and two, the size was very similar because we had big guys like Lambeer and Batten and Flowers, you know, to battle guys like Phillips and Roby and, and Goose Given. So I think everybody wanted that game, including us, but uh, we didn't live up to our side of the bargain. And uh, uh, we end up losing two games, which is, which is really hard to imagine uh, when you think about it over a weekend, having to go to Final Four and you get beat twice by a total of four or five points and you got nothing to show for it. But again, that was the times and uh, Kentucky ended up being champions and uh, Notre Dame has not gone back to the Final Four since. So uh, I guess we're still kind of proud in that regard and it's it's been a long time since then, but uh, still we're the only team ever to make it there. Some great memories, but oh so close, I guess, and it's just maybe a what if, but uh, my apologies, I got the teams mixed up. I was saying that you lost in the final four to Arkansas, but it was actually that consolation game you were talking about. So you lost the final four to Duke. Yeah, no, no worries. It's still a loss, Adam, either way. So <laughs> we lost one and we lost two, but they were both very close ball games, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. And uh, I had my family there at that time, and uh, they enjoyed the Checker Dome in, in St. Louis. And uh, there were some funny stories there as well. I guess somebody had stole my family's tickets from the hotel, a couple of them or somehow. And uh, I remember hearing the story after the game that uh, whoever stole them, somebody, they either sold them or those people came to the game. And of course, they sat down in the seats. And then my family said, what are you doing in the seat? Who, who gave those tickets? Oh, somebody. So long story short, they end up coming and, and arresting these guys because they came to the game or something like that, and they stole the seats that were supposed to be my family's seats. So it's always something with the Trapucas, so it's not a surprise. <laughs> the people that stole the tickets sort of gave it away by sitting in those seats next to other family members of yours? I don't know whether they end up selling them if they you know pleaded the fifth or said that they got them from somebody else, but I know they were taking back the question whether they solved it or not, but uh, <laughs> it made for a funny story, at least for the weekend. I found a great article, February 1980, I believe. You beat DePaul in double overtime. Uh, yeah, we had a habit of doing that. <laughs> you guys had some great wins at home, particularly, and, and upsetting some massive teams, uh, you know, UCLA included. We beat like seven number one teams during the course of my four years. Yeah, incredible. And uh, I just found a great article yesterday about that game, and there's a classic photo. Actually, there's two photos in the one article. One of them shows yourself celebrating with the, the game ball, just a close-up of yourself. And then the other one's a, a shot where it's got Bill Hanslick. You are front and center as well, um, celebrating after the win as well. So it looks like it was chaotic scenes and, and bedlam. Yeah, that was like one of the first times they allowed um, you know fans to rush to court and things like that. Now it's like they do that every freaking game. But uh, 
you know, the, you know, we we only did it when it was like really important. And I guess when you're being the number one team, that's that was pretty important. So now it's kind of old hat and a uh, little little crazy. Um, now, just moving on to the 1981 NBA draft, uh, you were one of nine future All-Stars, which is a, a great draft class, no doubt, and it was held in New York on June the 9th. You were picked up at number 12 overall by the Detroit Pistons. Now, when you entered the draft, what expectations did you have of where you may be headed? You know, I didn't really know a lot. I mean, that, again, it's funny that because I've been a part of broadcasting and scouting in the NBA up until a couple of years ago for like 20-some-odd years. Mm-hmm. I see how much it's changed. Obviously, we watch the draft uh, on TV now. It's a, it's a big it's a big party, you know. Back back in 1981, it wasn't anything like that. Basically, what it was is they invited you to New York at the Grand Hyatt. The draft was actually in a ballroom, no cameras and all the hoopla that surrounded it. Now, yeah, I went through the process after the season at Notre Dame. Played in a couple of uh, college all star games. In fact. Uh, was able to enjoy a trip to Las Vegas. They had an All Star game there, and I won. Uh, I won the MVP in that in that All Star game. We went to the Aloha Classic out in Hawaii, <laughs> which when you go to school in South Bend, Indiana, where it freaking snows like all the time <laughs> and it's cold, you're not going to turn down a trip to Hawaii. <laughs> so I went to Hawaii. I made the All Tournament team. Able to spend you know about ten days out there. I didn't want to come back to finish the school the senior year. <laughs> My point being, I, I was very successful in the postseason. I also played in the um, the Coaches All-Star Classic, which is at the Final Four, uh, my senior year, which was in Philadelphia, and did well in that game. So I had set myself up pretty good between my senior year and the All-Star Games, the postseason. So I was assuming I was going to be a, a pretty high pick. You know, now they start contacting you, the the pro teams. You know, they do some interviews or whatever, but it's it's nothing like it is now. It was really kind of nonchalant compared to what they go through now and these kids going around and working out for the team. We didn't we never worked out for anybody. You know what I mean? They just they may talk to you a little bit. And that was about it. They just basically go on on what they've seen in the postseason or your senior year or whatever. So I was told I was gonna be somewhere I would say I was gonna be somewhere around six to eleven. Right. There were a couple teams I thought I might I might go to, but you know you're sitting in that room and you have no idea when you're going to go. I thought maybe Chicago. They were like at seven or something at that time. Um, I don't remember the exact order. The only thing I I knew I wasn't going to go, but they end up lying to me, which is nothing new in the NBA. Um, and my mom was there with me because they were a local team, the New Jersey Nets at that time, where they had two picks. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that actually. They had two picks. The Pistons had two picks, and the Dallas Mavericks, I believe, had two picks. And I thought possibly maybe Dallas, their second pick, I forget where that was exactly, but the Nets picked third and 10th, I believe. Exactly right. So I thought I'd go to 10, but Larry Brown was the coach at that time. And he actually said, number one, they weren't going to take a small forward. Because they had Michael Korn, who played, who was a friend of mine, I played against in high school and, and AAU. He was a year ahead of me. And he was drafted the year before, along with Mike Jaminski from Duke. And they said they weren't going to take a small forward because he was there. Okay, I have no problem with that. You know, if that's the way you're thinking and you're not going to, you have two picks. I think they took Buck Williams at, at number three behind uh, Aguirre and, and Isaiah, who went to Dallas and uh, Detroit, respectively. 
I didn't have a big problem. So then when, you know, I didn't go the, to nine, I think it was maybe Dallas's other pick. I'm not sure. But uh, all of a sudden, 10 came and I figured, well, I'm not going to go here. So I'm not really interested. And then they end up taking Albert King. And man, I was PO'd. Mm. I mean, they lied to me because Albert King was a small forward. So if you tell me you're not going to take a small forward and then take Albert King, you know, that, that kind of makes me mad. Because I think I had a, a better career than Albert King, and I was, you know, bigger and stronger and done more. And you could have taken me. And obviously, at that time, it would have been nice to play at home. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about. Yeah, they out and out lied to me. Mm. So my mom was probably more upset than me because obviously, being in New Jersey and chance to see her her son play or whatever. Mm. How could you go go wrong by taking a local kid who grew up literally ten minutes from the from the Meadowlands? That's right. That's why I was really keen to ask because um, I knew that looking back through Basketball Reference, which is just a fantastic website, it breaks down the whole draft. And I know that with New Jersey having those two picks uh, right around the, your selection as well, I thought, oh, yeah. did you ever entertain the thought that you could play for the Nets and to have them tell you, no, nah, they weren't going to pick somebody in that position and then do the opposite? Well, not great. Yeah. No, it was very frustrating. You know, like I said, I grew up literally, I could, I could get to the Meadowlands where they played 10 minutes from my house. 10 minutes. You thought like, well, wait a minute, how good is your PR department? This is this is good in, in a number of ways because you got a local kid and you know, you're looking at attendance and he had a successful career, whatever. I mean, like, you know, I didn't I didn't let it bother me a whole lot other than the fact that they lied to me. I didn't I didn't really care. But if you can't tell the truth and then, then, you know, what do you have? So they kind of lie. I never heard the explanation or really care anymore. But uh it's just that the fact that, uh, you know, they said something and, and, and did another, that, that kind of hurt. And then all of a sudden, so that got me mad. Now also we're getting to 11. I'm going, geez, why aren't I getting picked about now? You know, so I think 11 was, uh, Washington. Yeah. Frank Johnson, a guard from Wake Forest. You've got great recall. I might go to them because you got to remember at that time, you're, you're thinking about the teams, what you know about the team. So now all of a sudden, I didn't go there. And I thought that was a real possibility. And people told me they almost took me at 11 Washington. Mm-hmm. So now that goes to 12. And I know nothing about Detroit other than that they're one of the worst teams, if not the worst team in the league. And I'm thinking, well, after that is Utah. And I don't want to go there. <laughs> so, so I'm not sure what's going to happen. Yeah. And I just remember sitting in, the, in, in my seat there and I'm looking up at the Detroit guy that's at the table there. And he ends up becoming a very good friend of mine later on. His name's Harry Hutt. He became actually became one of my bosses because I ended up doing eight years of uh, television for them. But uh, he became a really good friend of mine. And he was the head of, of marketing and broadcasting for the Pistons. And he used to do the work the table, answer the phone or whatever. And I remember this guy looking at me and I'm thinking, who's this bald guy, you know, looking at me? Yeah, he'll probably say he wasn't that bald back then. But uh, And he's sitting there pointing to me. And I'm wondering, what is he, what is he doing? Now, I knew that they had taken Isaiah at, at number two. So this was their second pick. Yeah. All of a sudden, the Commissioner O'Brien made the call and, and I'm going to Detroit. So I went up there and shook his hand and, uh, I knew nothing about Detroit other than that they were a horrible team, Adam. <laughs> I'm going, Oh boy, I'm not used to losing. <laughs> End up being a godsend because I think Isaiah and I, who had got to know him a little bit, uh, before that through the, um, uh, tryouts for the uh, Olympics in 1980, which we never end up going to. But uh, I went to tryouts and and uh, flew home with him. I think we dropped him off at at Bloomington at Indiana, and we had played against each other, obviously on the schedule as well. So I knew he was a lot like me, and you know he was younger because he came out early. But uh, he didn't want to lose either. 
So he and I were in this together. It ended up being a godsend because uh, we ended up putting Detroit on the map, uh, the two of us. I know they assumed they were getting something special in him at the two pick, but I think after the season that I had, uh, my rookie year, I think they, they felt like they stepped in you-know-what because uh, <laughs> they, they ended up getting two kids that made the all-star team as, as rookies. And uh, we became very good friends, and uh, we, were, we were part of the resurgence. We bought Detroit, put them back on the map, and we started winning some games. Kind of took off from there. So uh, at first it was a little rocky, you know, going out there and wondering whether we were going to sign a contract. There was a little bit of a contract problem. And, you know, obviously now they're all slotted, so uh, it was a little different back then. It ended up turning out very well. So uh, that, w- that was the right place for me at that time, and uh, it was a great start to my pro career. Yeah, you had a, a fantastic rookie season, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But you did mention the, the 1980 Olympics uh, that never happened in terms of Team USA taking part. Do you mind if we just hark back there for a moment and you talk about those trials and the tryouts that you're involved in and what your experience was with that because uh, it was a great team loaded with super talent and unfortunately never had the chance to display that on the uh, international stage. No, they didn't. You know, obviously those things sometimes are out of your control. Mm. The higher-ups were deciding what we were going to do, obviously, with things with Russia and and all of those stuff. Um, you know, President at that time, Carter, I believe, was uh, says we're not going. And, uh, you know, it's tougher particularly at that time, because it was more, you know, Olympics was more about amateurism. And a lot of these people, uh, you know, there weren't NBA players going at the time. You had college kids and, you know, a lot of these people in other sports were working, you know, four years to go and all of a sudden you're not allowed to go. So uh, it's it's tough for those people. But for us, the tryouts, I didn't like the process. I thought it was kind of phony, lack of a better word. They were held down at University of Kentucky. I was fortunate to be invited to go down there, but I think the whole process was kind of rigged, in my opinion, because, you know, they moved some guys around and put certain guys on certain teams so they look better. And then there were certain coaches there, you know, and, and it seemed like, you know, whoever had their coach there was going to get picked. And I don't ever felt like I was given a fair shot. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. Hmm. Um, I ended up not making the team, but um, some of the picks were a little peculiar to say the least you know digger wasn't fighting for us or whatever and it seemed like you know dean smith was down there and bobby knight got his guys and uh, a couple of kentucky guys and things like that so uh, i'm not sure about the whole process it just seemed like they moved certain guys around uh, to put them on better teams to make them look better and uh, uh, i never felt like it was a fair shot but you know as it turned out you know, it's not like I was happy they didn't go. Uh, you know, it's it's not good for anybody when they don't go. But uh, basketball was certainly different in the Olympics with the college kids. I almost wish they'd go back to that. Not a big Olympic fan now in regards to the basketball. I think it's kind of a joke, particularly after the Dream Team. I mean, you know, that was always a big thing back then because, you know, the U.S. was sending their college kids, whereas the other countries were, you know, they're sending men. Yes. Guys, you know, their Olympic team, they play with each other all year long, you know, and, and most of the time those guys are, you know, like NBA guys as far as age, you know, you're getting 28, 29, 30-year-old guys playing against 19, 20-year-old kids. In my opinion, you know, that all changed because uh, some of the European teams were getting better and they were starting to challenge and uh, some of these guys were showing up in the NBA and they were starting to get a little full of themselves and saying they were, you know, they were the best teams. 
So then the dream team came along and they said, oh, you think you're really good, huh? Well, <laughs> let's see you try to beat this team. <laughs> and of course, we know what happened. That, that kind of put everybody like, okay, now you understand who's the best team in the, in the world. It's the United States. So, and I understood that. It was great. It was a, a tremendous team, a lot of fun. Nobody could touch them. The cast of characters was off the charts. You know, now I'd like to see them, it's changed. Again, you got all these other countries now have so many guys that also play in the NBA. So they've gotten a lot better. Yeah. I would like to see one of two things. I would either like to see them go back to having the college kids play, you know, after an NBA season. What do we have to prove? We know that everybody tries to play in the NBA. That's the ultimate league. So that's where the best players are. Do we have to prove as a country that we're the best team every four years? Mm. In my opinion, I don't think so, particularly after the dream team. So I'd like to see the kids go back to doing it. And hey, if we lose, they lose, you know. But at the same time, if the other countries are going to start using pros, you know, whether it's Argentina or, you know, Australia doesn't have as many, but they've got a few, you know, whether it's Spain or, or you know, Croatia or whatever. I mean, there seems to be an NBA in, in every country now. If that doesn't work or they don't like that idea, guys shouldn't have an opportunity to play more than once. These guys that play three Olympics or four Olympics, I don't, I don't understand that. It's not necessary, particularly when you got a contract and you're an NBA owner. I don't want to see my guy go through an 82-game schedule or a 100-game schedule with playoffs and then be playing in the summer or whatever. You do it once, you win, that's it. That's your shot. You don't get to come back. In other words, give other people an opportunity because I think the NBA could send about, well, look at this year's team. And there were like seven or eight guys that dropped out. Yeah, They bought in the next row. You, you could probably do that about six times and come up with a team. I mean, you still have to pick a team that will play together. And maybe this team didn't, as some people or I've read, you know, didn't play that well together uh, because it gets back to what I mentioned earlier in the in the interview about guys getting selfish and AU, you know, basketball, you know, worrying about scoring. Who cares who scores? It's the Olympics. You're trying to win a gold medal. Nobody cares how much you score. It's not like you got a contract like you do with the NBA. So it shouldn't matter. But these guys don't understand that. So that kind of irks me a little bit. So I, I really wish that uh, if they if they stick with the pros, you shouldn't be allowed to go more than once. So that way you get more people have an opportunity to play if they want to. If you don't, you ask the next guy and so on and so forth. So that's just my opinion. Whether you like it or not, that's how I think it uh, it should be. So it's changed from when I tried out in 1980, obviously, and we we're so used to watching the college kids. I wouldn't mind seeing them get a chance because I think it'd be uh, it'd be kind of cool to go back that way. But I'm not sure it's going to happen ever again. You make some very valid points there, and uh, I really appreciate the honesty as well and the candor. So it's um, it's refreshing. One thing I wanted to ask you about: um, we briefly talked about your first pro coach, Scotty Robertson. Mm-hmm. He preceded uh, the great Chuck Daly. What do you recall about Scotty Robertson? Because he's a figure in the NBA that I honestly don't know a whole lot about. I've only sort of heard his name mentioned here and there. But what can you tell us firsthand from being alongside Scotty for a few years? Well, I owe Scotty a lot because he believed in me. You know, he was the first coach, uh, my coach in the in the NBA, and uh, he was a Southern guy from Louisiana. I say pecan, and he say, "Ah, oh, Kelly, it's pecan, it's not pecan, <laughs> it's pecan." You know, and he had that drawl. You know, he'd been around a little while. In fact, even after he got fired, he uh, 
he worked as an assistant for a couple of guys, including uh, Pat Riley oh, okay. in Miami. So, uh, you know, but Scotty was a good old boy, as we call him. You know, I got along with him. He believed in me. So, I, you know, I have a special place because uh, I'd like to think that I, you know, I won the job. And obviously I did because I beat out some veteran guys. But, uh, you know, he knew my talents. And along with Isaiah, trying to teach him how to become a point guard get his teammates involved because he was so talented, you know, he'd kind of forget. And, and that had to be the rule of thumb. And I think if you asked Isaiah now, he, he understood. It took him a while because, he, you know, he could score. But that was something he had to learn to, to try to make sure that he got other players involved before he got involved. And I think that was the, the rule of thumb for a point guard uh, to be a great point guard in this league. You know, you can score. Uh, and he certainly could, but it was it was more important that he got his teammates involved first to get them uh, you know involved in the game quickly. And then there's always time for him to be able to get involved as well. And uh, Scotty used to always emphasize and push that on him. And uh, for me, Scotty always believed that uh, you know the way he ran the offense was was certainly conducive to me. Mm-hmm. You know, because I played over 3,000 minutes. I was like third in the league in, in, in minutes played, second or third in my rookie year in the league. And we played an up-tempo brand. We wanted to run. You know, if you didn't have to run a play the entire game, that was a good thing. Yeah. You know, everything was fast break. You get out and run. You, you stop people. You can get out easy baskets. You know, if you didn't, the fast break flowed into your offense. So it, it just kind of melded together and – uh that's what Scotty always emphasized. And, uh, you know, he played me a lot of minutes and, uh, you know, played to my strengths. And uh, I liked him. Other guys that didn't necessarily get along with him, you know, Scotty had his, his sayings and his, and his uh, Southern attitude and, and, and things like that. Um, but, you know, I enjoyed playing for him and he was, he was very good for my career in the first couple of years. And obviously, you know, Chuck is a Hall of Fame coach and uh, he was, he was great as well, but Scotty was just different. And, uh, you know, going through the first couple of years, particularly your rookie year, you don't know what to expect. Um, you know, it was kind of tough. You know, we had we had like 18 two days my my first uh, my first training camp. Wow. You know, that was unheard of because uh, camp was just so long. Now they go to camp for like you know five days. They have like <laughs> three days of two days. I thought it was never going to end. I was dying. <laughs> you know, every day was two days, and then we played our first exhibition game, and he got mad the way we played. And he said, we're going to go back to two days. And it's almost like you're going, no, I can't do it. <laughs> wow. But I remember it. So, uh, but he, I, I enjoyed Scotty. He became a very good friend of mine and his, his, uh, family, his wife was very nice and, uh, you know, was sorry to see him go. But I mean, you know, that's, that's the, the business side of the NBA, you know, guys, uh, guys get hired and fired, but, uh, I enjoyed playing for Scotty. And, uh, even after he was fired and it was always nice to see him, I'm thankful for how, you know, he treated me and, and gave me a shot, and I'd like to think that uh, I earned everything I got. It was it was a good uh, good couple of years playing for Scotty. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, you had a, a heck of a rookie season. You signed with the Pistons in late September, only a couple of days before that training camp opened, and it was held at the University of Michigan. Um, do you remember much about the camp aside from those, you know, two a days you're talking about there? How was the mix of personalities and players? Um, and then molding into the team that you'd become for that 81-82 campaign. I did sign late, but, you know, that's part of negotiations, I guess. So different than it is now, but you're trying to get the, you know, the best deal. Uh, and that's something your agent does. And Bob Wolf and uh, 
and his people were trying to uh, negotiate a contract and you're sitting at home wondering whether you know you're going to be there for the opening camp and thankfully it all worked out mm -hmm. it's brand new you you're you're nervous you're uneasy you're uh you know exactly what what's this going to entail i mean it's still basketball but at the same time it's uh it's training camp and it's two days and uh you know you go through the fundamentals and the drills and getting in shape and uh you know it's just repetitive and uh i don't think i ever anticipated that you know you'd go that long particularly now again i emphasize training camp is you know not even a week before they start playing the games and we were it was longer than it was almost three weeks before we play. I mean, just every single day practice, the monotony of going through the same thing and doing the same thing. It's like you're sore, you're sitting in buckets of ice, trying to get the lactic acid out of your legs and you're hurt. And, you know, even though you're 22 years old or whatever, I'm like, oh, I, when is this going to be over? You, know, you just <laughs> want to play games. You know, we end up playing the Indiana Pacers. I think the first exhibition game, I think it was in Michigan somewhere. Mm-hmm. George McGinnis oh, yeah. was on the Indiana Pacers, a great star from the ABA. Indeed. He was built like a, a linebacker. I mean, George was just a big man, muscles and, and everything else. And, you know, I'm sitting there going, I'm on the floor with George McGinnis. <laughs> and I must have got my shot blocked in that game about six times. And, uh, you know, we struggled. And I told you, Scotty was upset with us and said we're going to go back to two days it was like it was a big groan like no you can't do that it's a, no there's no way so well we survived whatever those 18 two days or whatever it was it just seemed like forever it was never going to end so you just couldn't wait for the regular season to start the exhibition games you know at that time we played like eight of them some of the small little podunk towns uh wasn't really a lot of fun back in those days because now they they kind of play at their own arenas or still play in the nba arenas we would go to some of these little tiny towns in the middle of nowhere and play in front of a couple hundred people and you're like going what's the point of this mm. you know staying in crappy hotels and you just want to get the regular season going and say well this has got to be better than this you know there was a reason for it. you had to adjust you know I, I learned how to get my shot off you know that was the biggest thing from that first game you know you, you have to make adjustments as a player and uh I hardly got my shot blocked the rest of the rest of the time in the league. You understand timing and, and figure it out and persistence. And I was very persistent. And even though I get my shot blocked, I get it back and put it back up. If I got it blocked again, I put it back up again to either get fouled or you score or whatever. So it was a tough camp. It was a, a rude awakening, I guess you could say, for that first year. But uh, I'm also in the NBA and I'm also a starter. And, you know, that's a big accomplishment. There were, you know, the Pistons were a terrible team the year before. so. It seemed like they couldn't do any worse than what they were doing, but now we had two first-round picks and a couple of guys that, had, that were holdovers from the year before. So, you know, they wanted to get better. We had to create some excitement and between Isaiah Thomas and I. I mean, he got all the publicity because he was a higher, you know, number two draft pick, and a lot of people knew more about him. I think they were expecting him to be great. I don't think they were expecting me. So uh, as it turned out, you know, I almost won the Rookie of the Year. I still think I should have won the Rookie of the Year. Um, because I was the 12th pick and uh, Buck Williams won it. Uh, he played for New Jersey, so he was you know near all the media or whatever. But uh, for the third pick, I think he did what he was supposed to, but I don't think anybody ever thought I was going to have the type of year that I had. That's just me. Uh, we put Detroit back on the map, and uh, from then, you know, they had a long, long history uh, leading to two world championships. I'd like to think that I had something to do with that along with some other guys. Um, we'll get back to that rookie season of yours. You had a great season. Uh, you played all 82 games. 
and at 21.6 points a game, you were just three-tenths of a point behind the leading scorer for Detroit of John Long. Uh, the team improved dramatically, as you mentioned as well, from the season prior, and uh, along with Isaiah, you were named to the 82 All-Star game. So before I just ask you about your All-Star memories, what are your thoughts on that first year in the NBA and the difference that happened with the franchise of Detroit? Well, I was excited. I mean, the fact that... Uh you know, we had, we had started to put people in the stands. Nobody used to come to the games in Detroit. We played at the Silverdome, which is a football stadium, you know, 80,000 seats, and they used to cordon off one corner of it and put uh, removable stands on one side, and, and you could get 10,000 or you could get 40,000, depending on the game. And I used to do some of the selling. Me and Isaiah, we used to do commercials to try to have certain nights. So they'd have punk night or they'd have uh, uh, Jim McMahon night or uh, Toga night and stuff like that. <laughs> I used to do commercials just to get people to come to the thing. I never got paid for my marketing skills. I probably should have. But, uh, you know, that's kind of what you do. You want to get people interested. And, you know, they, they were averaging like 2,000 people a game. So now when you get like eight, 10,000, it seemed like a lot. Mm-hmm. But you still have to have a product on the floor. And we became exciting. I mean, you got a guy like Isaiah who can handle the ball. And he struggled early in his career trying to become a point guard. You know, what that consisted of, because he was so talented, he could score, but he had to learn how to, you know, distribute the ball and get other people involved before he got his. And he really grew into that. And that's, you know, why he became one of the best to ever play, because, uh, you know, he figured it out. For me, it was just kind of a continuation. I fought for a job and uh, I won the job as a rookie and, you know, was running the floor. Uh, that was my my thing. I could score from outside. I could post up. I got to the foul line. I I ran the, the fast break and he had a guy like Isaiah who was going to get to the ball. And, you know, we had other good players. John Long was a real good player out of Detroit and Ken Benson, a uh, great Indiana player. We traded for Bill Lambeer down the line. We traded for Vinnie Johnson down the line. We drafted Joe Dumars. You know, this is all happening. But that first year, you know, it was just a matter of of trying to win as much as possible. Two young kids who never were used to losing nor wanted to lose coming from Indiana and Notre Dame, you know, we wanted to win. We weren't going to settle for just being Detroit, the same old Detroit losing games. We just, we didn't have that attitude. We said, we're going to win. So that really got the town interested. You know, the city of Detroit started to get behind us and we started winning some games and you could see, you know, some excitement building and, uh, the fact that we both made the all-star team as rookies. It's incredible. We both made, you know, the all-rookie team. And, and a lot of exciting things were happening. And uh, it, was a, it was a great place to be uh, at that time. And, and certainly things were, were starting to build. And uh, I think they appreciated that they had two young stars or future stars and a couple older guys that uh, I think were getting a taste that things could change here. And they were getting enthusiastic after going through a season like the one they had the year before where you're kind of down, you don't think it's going to happen. So, you know, those older guys start to get excited, kind of feeds off of uh, the younger guys. Hey, that's kind of where it all started. That's where Detroit became Detroit. 1981-82 season, I think people started to get excited. Yeah, it's a massive increase from the season before in terms of performance. And yeah, two great young players uh, starting to lead the team towards continued playoff success down the line now just briefly 1982 all-star game was actually in new jersey uh, obviously not far from where you were born as you were talking about before um how did you 
react to the news of being named to the East squad and what do you recall about being involved in the game so close to where you actually grew up and were born? No, that was that was as exciting as it gets, Adam. To ever think you were, you know, one of the, you know, 24 best players in the world uh, at one time, you know, and as a rookie, and not only to make the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you don't go in thinking that. I mean, it's an all-star game. That's for the, the best of the best. Um, but I had played really well. You know, I remember my first, my first encounter with Dr. J. You know, he was one of my heroes. I used to run home on uh, Friday nights to watch the New York Nets of the old ABA <laughs> on WOR television, Channel 9 here, and watch him play. Now, he went to the University of Massachusetts where my one brother, Mark, who played football there, was there at the same time. All right. So that was kind of ironic because I remember he used to come home uh, either for Christmas or after the football season or during school break or whatever and try to tell us about that the University of Massachusetts has this really good basketball player. And we used to go like, what do you mean good? <laughs> he'd say, no, he's like really good. And my other brothers would say the same thing. I'd go, well, how good could he be? He goes to the University of Massachusetts, not like, you know, that's a, that's a powerhouse or whatever, a well-known college team. Mm-hmm. They go, no, he's really good. I'm telling you, he could probably be a pro. I go, well, what's his name? And he'd said, Julius Irving. And we used to go, never heard of him. <laughs> you know, and obviously Julius Irving became Dr. J. Man, Dr. J was so good in the ABA when he was with the Nets. It was scary. He used to love watching him play with the big afro and the, the red, white, and blue basketball. He was something else. You know, when I was a kid watching him play, never, ever did I ever dream that I would be on the same floor as him. Obviously, my rookie year, you play everybody. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the guys that I played against, uh, you know, during the course of my career, whether it's, you know, Dr. J or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, or Bob Lanier, or Tiny Archibald, or Larry Bird, or Charles Barkley, or Michael Jordan, and I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I could give you a, a hundred of them. You never put yourself in that category, but we had to play the Philadelphia 76ers, and they were darn good back in 1981-82, you know, with Andrew Tony and Mo Cheeks and, and Moses Malone, and uh, gosh, they were really good. And I'm like, I'm going to play against Dr. J? It's like, you know, I'm scared, I'm intimidated, I'm excited, I'm, I'm everything. And I think the first game I played against Dr. J, I had like 30 points and like eight assists and and six rebounds or six assists and eight rebounds, whatever. I had big game. And like, of course, everybody wanted to know after the game, all the reporters, like, what what'd you think playing against Dr. J and putting up those kind of numbers? And like, I'm like, I'm stuttering and stammering and I, I don't know what to say. I got a big smile on my face and, you know, I don't want to say the wrong thing or whatever. And I don't remember what I said, but I do remember what Dr. J said, because they asked him and word got back to me. And they asked him, what do you think of the rookie, uh, you know, Kelly Trapuca and the game he had. And, and, and as classy as Julius is and always was, and I became very friendly with him. He said, hey, he says, number one, he's a pro. Otherwise he wouldn't be here. Number two, Seems like he's been putting up those type of numbers all season long, so you got to give him his credit. Something like it, you know, 
if he continues to do that, he's going to be an all-star for, for many years or whatever. So, I mean, that was – doesn't get any better than that, Adam, you know, to have have a guy like that who you idolized, respected, uh, watched, and, and you end up playing a, your game, a game against him and have an unbelievable night, and uh, he gives you the respect that he, that he showed. So uh, I always thought of that, that uh, and remember that, and I will never forget it respected what he what he said and uh, how he's always acted he's always been that way so in the end I wasn't I wasn't too surprised but uh, it was a special night for me uh, at that time and uh, you know playing against the the great Julius Irving and uh, certainly I got a chance it seemed like every night you were playing against somebody so you didn't have time to get too awestruck because there was always another guy you know waiting in the wings Uh, when you look at the small forward position back in the 80s Mm. I mean, gosh, it's it, every night there was somebody, whether it was Adrian Danley, Dr. J, Larry Bird, Dominic Wilkins, uh, Bernard King, um, Alex English, Kiki Vandeweghe, uh, Purvis Short. It just goes on and on and on. It seems like every night there's uh, Bobby Jones. Uh, there's always somebody. It was never a night off. Either sink or swim, as they say. You had to compete. Otherwise, you'd, you'd, you'd get killed. I love it. Thanks so much for sharing these memories as well. It's just awesome to hear your reminiscing about this. So I really appreciate it. And, and the time that we've been chatting to date so far, uh, just can't thank you enough. Um, 1983, in January of 1983, you sprung for 56 points against the Bulls. And then you also broke Dave Bing's team record 54 points in that game. Do you remember much about... The performance, there's a clip on YouTube which is titled Unforgettable Moments, Chapuka scores 56 or something like that. And it's a great little clip with some throwback to you in that game, scoring from all over the floor, a whole series of moves. Do you mind just talking us through that and, and what you thought of that particular performance? Well, I mean, number one, I was sick. <laughs> you mentioned you had the flu the night before or something? Yeah, I didn't play the night before. And that's unusual for me because I didn't like missing games. I had the flu, and we were playing Cleveland, who was not very good then. The theory was that, well, why don't you sit out this game because we got to play the next night or whatever it was against the Bulls, and we'll probably beat Cleveland, and we'll go from there. Well, guess what? We didn't beat Cleveland. <laughs> so now that not making me head, and then I felt worse the next day. I had a, like 103 temperature and just wasn't feeling great. I'm going to play because I'm mad that we lost and we got to try to win. So coach uh, Scotty Robertson at the time said, well, you, you just try to do whatever you can. I'll try to get you as much rest as possible. And you go from there. And, you know, once you start warming up, you get a little adrenaline and you, know, you kind of get as much rest during the day and you put it behind you, you know, and see if you can, you can go out again. I was, you know, fairly young and, uh, you know, I was going to try to do my best and didn't like the losing and certainly not the Cleveland at that time. So uh, I got off to a hot start, you know, just um, hit a couple of shots and had it going for a little while early on. And there were a couple of timeouts and I was sweating profusely and then uh, looking to sit down during those timeouts and catch my breath and hopefully try to get a second wind. And I remember coach coming up, he's going, Geez, I'd love to get you some time. He says, but you're going so good right now. I don't really want to take you out of the game. So by that time, you know, you get off to a good start as a player and you really don't want to come out. Mm. You know, you ride the hot hand and you're, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. And, you know, so then you say, no, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll figure it out. Leave me in. 
I just got into a rhythm. You know, three-pointers, as I said before, were not very prevalent. So that was done without any three-pointers, you know, hitting jump shots, getting in my range, you know, foul line, wing, baseline, getting some post-ups, running the floor, got to the foul line. And after a while, again, you're, you're trying to win the game. It was a close game against Chicago. I knew I was scoring well. You don't know how many at that time. But again, you're not really concerned about that because you're more looking at the scoreboard and trying to figure out how we get this win. So uh, Indiana, was a, it was a close ball game towards the end. Um, I know people were getting excited. I mean, to say I knew what they were excited about, I, I couldn't tell you. But I, at the same time, I knew something special was happening. So Isaiah was trying to get me the ball as much as possible. And at the same time, we also want to win the game, but I'm the, I'm the hot guy. And they put four or five different guys on me that night. Nothing could stop me. I was, I think I ended up like, what, 18 for 25 or something. That's a really good percentage. I mean, it's not like, you know, 40, 50 shots, 25 shots and you make 18. And I got to line a lot. You know, my main concern was winning the game because if, if, if I was having a big game, which I knew I was, I don't like losing games that you have a big game. So, uh, uh, I know I hit a shot towards the end, and then uh, Vinny Johnson hit hit a shot and maybe a free throw, and and uh, we end up winning that game by one or two or something like that. It was a, a real close ball game, and uh, um, it was at the end. A couple of people came up to me on the court. They said, you had 56. No kidding, 56? <laughs> yeah, and then they said, you broke the scoring record of Dave Bing. Now, Dave Bing was a legend in Detroit. Still is, you know, was the mayor of Detroit at one time. And he also did, he broadcasted our games. So we saw Dave Bing a lot. What a gentleman, you know, just a great guy. And and my first thought was, for lack of a better word, I'm kind of embarrassed. Um, This guy's a legend. I'm nobody. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I I felt kind of bad (laughs) breaking his record in, in, in some way, you know, but he was so classy about it. Uh, I think he told a story one time that, um, doing the game, he was like saying, they got to stop feeding Kelly because he's getting close to my <laughs> record. I don't want him breaking it. So, I mean, Dave, Dave Bing is as nice a people as, as you'll ever meet. You know, he's just a classy guy, was a great player. You know, he congratulated me or whatever. But, uh, you know, that's how it goes. And, and more importantly, we won the game. You know, that helped me get over my sickness a little bit. Um, you know, sometimes you end up playing your best game when – you don't expect to because you're either sick or whatever. We saw Michael Jordan do it. That was pretty darn good. So I know the feeling. You know, sometimes you just get into a zone and and you overcome those things because you don't have the expectations and all of a sudden you get the adrenaline going and things are going right. It was my night. I was fortunate to have a few of those nights and uh, you just feel like you're not going to miss. And uh, for me, most of the night I did miss and we won the game and I had 56. So it was a it was a special thing, and you, you just think about it. You're an NBA player, and you, you scored 56 points against uh, in the NBA. So it was it was pretty cool. You know, it's something that uh, you don't forget. You remember exactly kind of what happened. At the same time, you you hope to have many more nights like that, but uh, they're few and far between. Yeah, it's a fantastic performance. Absolutely awesome. Um, I'd just like to briefly quote from a great resource that I found online. It's from a book that's titled More Than Four Decades of Motor City Memories by Steve Addy, and then it says updated by Jeffrey Carson. I'm not sure if it's even pronounced correct. It says, 
talking about the Pistons uniforms. The uniforms were again restyled in 82, switching to a clean block ladder concept that survived essentially untouched until 1996, except for the material, that is. The early 80s uniforms were a shiny grey, satin-like material yeah. that looked wonderful, as long as it stayed dry. But after the players got sweaty, the grey would turn a blotchy blue, changing to cotton eventually made amends for that fashion faux pas. So there's some classic photos throughout the 1980s, and particularly of those, I think that uniform style was celebrating the Pistons' 25th anniversary of it was moving from Fort Wayne. What do you recall about that particular uh, uniform change at the time, Kelly? Everybody loved the uniforms. They were actually pretty cool because it was, you know, it was celebrated 25 years, so it was silver. Mm. So, and the fact that we were in the Silver Dome, I don't think that had anything to do with it. But, you know, the Lions, Detroit Lions that played in the Silver Dome with us, or we played with them because it was really their home field. You know, they, they were that silver and blue, and we were kind of, you know, it's supposed to be red, white, and blue. But that one year, or at least a couple of years, we, we played in, uh, in those silver uniforms, which are ever pretty cool. Like you said, they were like a satin material, mm. you know, so it was really different. They're actually very comfortable, but obviously when you did start to sweat, they would change it to a darker color. I wouldn't call it. They didn't change to blue. They just, the, the gray just got dark gray, like a, like when you sweat. Yeah. But the, the silver color was really kind of cool. If they could have ever done that in the, the cotton mesh or whatever that, you know, that they have now, that would really be, really be neat. Well, everybody used to always comment on those uniforms. That one year with the with the silver uh, before we went back to the, the white, they were just different at that time. So if the Pistons ever do a throwback, I don't know how they don't try to do that that silver color. Ah, oh, yes. But now, obviously, in the in the material that they use, you know, the light material, the mesh cotton, whatever stretchy cotton that they use now, that would really be cool. That would be a, a great uniform because uh, we love those uniforms. Those were pretty cool, way ahead of their time. I think there's a great photo of yourself after you had that pretty sure it's after your 56-point game. I think you still were wearing those uniforms at that time, perhaps, and there's a, a great photo of yourself celebrating just as you're walking off the court. You know, I had the flu that game, so... Was, That's right. I was really sweating, so <laughs> I guarantee it was a different color to start the game, Adam, than it was at the, at the end of the game. <laughs> I'm absolutely certain of that. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. Suggest topics or guests you want to hear conversations with. You can leave me a voicemail, just visit inallairness.com slash voice, click start recording, leave a message and press stop. You can even listen back before you submit. Press send and you're done. Time to share another excellent review from a fan of the show. Thanks to the incredibly named Art Chewington. That username is nothing to sneeze at. On the Australian iTunes store. Now I actually happen to know this is Adam Wiseman. Thank you Adam for your great review on the podcast. It's titled Terrific, insightful, and extremely punny. Nice play on words. And it reads, Absolutely terrific podcast. Great in-depth analysis of Jordan's career on and even off the court with some great humor rolled in for good measure. If you're a fan of Jordan or even basketball history, give it a listen. You won't be disappointed. Now, thanks very much, Adam. That is a great review, and I really appreciate you taking time to send that review in. Worldwide, the show currently has 61 reviews, 58 are on iTunes and 3 on Stitcher. Thanks for your continued support. If you add a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode. And as I always say, your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways that you can support the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do tell your basketball-loving friends about it. Your word-of-mouth recommendations are worth their weight in gold. You can subscribe to my show in various ways. 
in allairness.com slash iTunes. Add it to your Stitcher playlist, in allairness.com slash Stitcher. You can also subscribe on Pocket Casts, Overcast, Player FM, TuneIn Radio, other podcatchers, and of course, via the Podcasts app on your iOS device of choice. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.